Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today we are joined by esteemed guest, Dr. Theodore Bayshore. Ted earned his PhD in clinical and biological psychology from the University of Colorado. He has been a professor of psychology at the Medical College of Pennsylvania, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and the University of Northern Colorado. Ted has an extensive scientific research publication record in the cognitive and neurosciences that has focused on understanding the structure and timing of neurocognitive processing speed and speeded reactions in normal aging, neurological disease, and elite athletes. Prior to his academic career, Ted was a two-sport collegiate athlete at UCLA where he played linebacker for the football team and first base for the baseball team. He was drafted by the Braves in 1965, spent five years as a professional baseball player with the Braves and the New York Mets playing alongside or against the likes of Major League stars Dusty Baker, Tom Seaver, and Nolan Ryan. Today we dive into the difference of simple and choice reaction time and how that shows up in play decision making, how to precisely measure the two decisions, and what it means for an athlete to react quickly and accurately compared to average humans. All of that is coming up here on the S2 Cognition podcast. And as always, please subscribe, rate, leave a review, and share the podcast with a friend. Dr. Ted Bayshore coming up next. You played professional baseball, you played football at UCLA, and you're a cognitive neuroscientist. Out of the gates, I'm going to ask you a real tough question. Why do you think cognition is so important, and why has it been neglected for so long? Well, I, I, I think historically there's been this relatively uh, simple and straightforward perspective that uh, sports, particularly you know sports like football and baseball, soccer, basketball, they depend upon fast reaction times. And when people conceptualize a sport in that sort of way, simply linking it to reaction time, they forget about all the processes that are involved in uh, uh, responding to a stimulus and making choices about response outputs and the sort of complexity that's involved in uh, higher level uh, sports. When you're talking about those split second reaction times, what what goes into measuring that when you're when you're talking about that precise of a decision, you're talking sub hundreds of milliseconds. You know, this they're not having multiple time, multiple seconds to think and make these decisions. How do you measure those type of things in in your lab? Well, the the kinds of measurements that uh, that are being done in the lab today actually can date back to the uh, latter part of the 19th century when they had an old machine called a chronograph, and they could actually measure. With uh, with millisecond accuracy, and of course, as we've evolved through the years, we've we've used uh, devices like a tachistoscope in, in the middle part uh, of the um, of the 20th century and up into the 1970s, actually. And maybe a study that I'll talk about briefly uh, later is one uh, a flanker test that we used that uh, the early data were collected using a tachistoscope with timing mechanisms that allowed you to measure with millisecond accuracy. And now, of course, we have uh, computers that allow us to do that. However, there are complexities in terms of how you deal with operating systems and being able to account for lag times. And, and lag times can be, you know, two or three or four or five or 
10 or 15 or 20 milliseconds. And so sophisticated computer programmers have to be able to account for those kinds of lag times because the sort of work we're doing requires that we really get to millisecond accuracy. That allows us with real precision to partition our uh, decision-making space into finely grained components. And I'll, if you would like me to, in in a bit, I'll talk about sort of my conceptualization of how different processes can be engaged. And we'll just for for, uh, simplicity talk about these uh, processes as stages and uh, how in a half a second, a number of of processes or stages can be engaged that uh, from a stimulus input to a response output, and it's so it's occurring very quickly. On the lines of the reaction speed, you know, Ted, it's something that uh, Scott and I have, you know, really tried to take from the laboratory, uh, which we learned from folks like you um, on how how to be precise um, and to uh, to have devices that can capture those reaction times within you know, one to two milliseconds. I mean, now a lot of the devices are actually, um, the clock, the internal clock is built into it. So it can demarcate uh, very quickly, but we see a lot, not just as you talked about with operating system, but even keyboards, keyboard strokes have different latencies. Um, and oftentimes the, 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 the research that Scott and I have done is, is unfortunately, it's not just a standard latency problem. So if you knew your keyboard was off by 50 milliseconds or 51 thousandths of a second every time, that'd be great. We could account for that. But it's variable, right? And so sometimes it might be 12 milliseconds off. Sometimes it might be 70-something milliseconds off. And so when they give you a latency uh, offset problem, it's oftentimes the average. So we need to not only be precise in one to two milliseconds, it also needs to be consistent and reliable over time. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that we struggle with, you know, every day uh, when we when we talk about reaction measurements. And, and I want to get into the sort of the cognitive space of, of reaction time. You know, some of the work that we've done with uh, foot like football players, as an example, elite running backs uh, oftentimes can be separated from non-elite running backs with you know, under 21 thousandths of a second. So the accuracy is critical, right? I mean, and and when we're talking about these reaction times, we're not just talking about simple reaction times. We're talking about these complex processes where you have to shield your attention or you have to inhibit responding one way or the other. Um, from a cognitive perspective, I'd like to just hear your conceptualization from the ground up. And when I say from the ground up, I'd like I'd love to hear about just simple reaction time, how that differs from choice reaction time, and how that differs from multiple options or distracting information or impulsive information. And then, you know, layer that on the context of when does it matter? You know, does it matter in sports? Does simple reaction time matter in sports? Does is complex reaction time or choice reaction time matter in sports? Now that's a huge question, uh, but you know I, we we can we can start at the bottom, and you know I'd love to hear just about your work in in simple reaction time versus choice reaction time. Well, as as, as you were talking at the outset about uh, the millisecond accuracy, is reminded of studies I've I've done on inner hemispheric transmission time, 
And with a simple reaction where you're just getting a stimulus in there, either pressing with a right button or a left button, then you can measure the time that it takes for information to be transmitted from one cerebral hemisphere, say from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere, um, you get times of a millisecond and a half, and they're highly significant. I mean, I've run a few hundred students in my laboratory testing them on these tasks where you'll present, say, just a simple flash of light in the left uh, visual hemisphere, or visual half field, and the subject will have to press a button with the right index finger. The information will activate, coming from the left hemifield, will activate the right half of the visual brain, okay? But in order to make the right button press, the information has to be transmitted over the left motor cortex for that response signal to go out. So in a very simple task like that, consistently we find a millisecond and a half to two milliseconds of transmission time in a simple task like that. Okay, so that, as it turns out, the first experiments done looking at inner hemispheric transmission time were done in 1912, published as a dissertation by a person at Columbia called A.T. Poffenberger. And I actually read the dissertation many years ago, and it took him a year to build his equipment. And when I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, <laughs> I was in Emanuel Donchin's laboratory at the University of Illinois as a postdoc, thinking, we can just write a computer program to run this off in you know, an hour. We could, we could do this. It took Poffenberger <laughs> a year to build his equipment, a chair and tilting and all this sort of thing. Okay, so we have those very simple kind of reactions, but they are just like maybe a starting point and an end point. Okay, say it takes 100 milliseconds for an incoming stimulus to activate the visual cortex. Okay, and to get a response out from the command and motor cortex down to the button press, say, 20 milliseconds. That's probably reasonably constant across people, although it can vary. Like if you have, you know, an early diagnostic diagnostic tool for MS is looking at a component that occurs to a flash uh, pattern stimulus in, in visual cortex and little delays of like five to 10 milliseconds in folks. And you can, that is perhaps the earliest cue of MS, at least it, it, it used to be. So we've got a lot going on between a stimulus input and a response output. And here we're talking about increasing numbers of milliseconds depending upon the kind of processing that has to be done at any one of these stages. Now, let me very quickly run through some stages. First, I'll give you a little bit of history, okay? In the late 1860s, 1860, I hope you don't mind my hands moving in the screen. Oh, no. Nope. <laughs> it's a podcast. You can get up and dance and do a jig. All, all right, man. So 1868, 1869, a Dutch physiologist by the name of F.C. Donders. And by the way, this antedates psychology as a scientific discipline. So Donders was a physiologist and a very distinguished physiologist. He was, uh, in fact, at a conference, he sat next to Charles Darwin, who was, Darwin was being feeded sometime in the, the 1870s, I think. And he asked Donders to be a person who sat next to him by his side because he was a distinguished ophthalmologist, et cetera. Donders was the first person to suspect that what you could do is you could partition speeded decision-making processes into their component sub-processes. And so his work 
on reaction time. He conceptualized, in his work, he conceptualized three types of reaction. An A reaction, he called it, which we would call today a simple reaction. You get one stimulus, invariant, say a flash of light, and you make the same response each time, say a right button press. Okay? Simple reaction. You don't have to discriminate a stimulus. You don't have to select a response. Same thing. Stereotype response. Same stimulus. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. Almost like a uh, a sprinter yes. on the line, waiting for the the sound, the gun to go off, to, exactly. to start, or the, or the tone to go off. Yeah. In fact, <clears throat> I had uh, in in my notes here. I was gonna I, I was gonna make reference to studies that were done. Not very many studies were done for reasons that I can talk about a little later. Uh, of reaction time from about 1900 to to 1950, and but. A couple of studies that were done were actually looking at these essentially the simple reaction times of sprinters out of the blocks to see what was the, the, the relationship between how quickly a sprinter could get out of the blocks and their time in the 50 or their time in the 40. Okay. Uh, but so the A reaction, simple reaction, as Scott suggested, something evidence, for example, when a sprinter is down at the blocks and waiting for the gun. Okay. And then he had a second reaction he called a B reaction. And today we would call it a two-choice reaction. So say you have the letter A indicates a left button press. The letter B indicates a right button press. Okay, So now you have to discriminate an A from a B and then select the appropriate response, left button press or right button press. Then he added a third reaction. He called a C reaction. Now, here what he did was he had multiple stimuli presented. However, only one of them signaled a response. Okay. So he argued that what this required was you simply had to discriminate the stimulus because you're always preparing the same response. So you didn't have to select a response in contrast to the two-choice reaction. You simply had to discriminate the target stimulus from the other stimuli. Okay. So when that target appeared, then you made the button press, stimulus discrimination. Then he argued what he was doing in his research is something that we do. We now call it a parametric analysis. You systematically go through increasing complexity. He called it the complication experiment. A, least complicated. C, actually intermediate. And B, the most complicated of three. And what he argued was that when you added complexity, you didn't alter the timing of the other processing stages, okay? So when the two-choice reaction was required, that didn't add, it didn't affect the stages of processing relative to, say, stimulus discrimination. The timing was the same with these, you simply, you call it the notion of pure insertion. You just inserted stages, okay, of processing, okay? We don't happen to agree with that. Now things are, you know, much more complicated. And he had a very sequential model. You process A, you process B, C, etc. Okay. So that, that was the early foundational work. Now that work led to, actually was, was, was fundamental to the development of the first psychology laboratory by Wilhelm Wundt at the University of Leipzig. Wundt was a physician, a physiologist, a philosopher. In 1879, 
He founded the first psychology laboratory with experimental psychology. That really established psychology as a scientific discipline. So 1879, Leipzig. Uh, the early work done in his laboratory was devoted to reaction time studies. We've always understood the importance of speeded decision-making. Now, in the 1830s and 40s, Hermann von Helmholtz was doing research on, he started to study reaction time, but the view was that transmission in the nervous system was so fast you couldn't measure it, it as fast as the speed of light. You couldn't measure it, okay? <laughs> Then, of course, Donders proved that to be not the case. And then in Vunt's laboratory, their early work was designed to take an in-depth look at Donders' ideas, and they added a D-reaction, which was kind of a silly, uh, silly by contemporary standards, where Vunt had the subject pause and make decisions about, you know, delay the response and to engage other processes and discrimination or whatever before pressing the button. Well, that just contaminates everything. But, you know, we're talking 1879, 1880. In fact, the first PhD awarded in psychology was awarded to a person in Vunt's laboratory to a person called Max Friedrich. And it was a reaction time study studying Donder's views and, and, and Vunt's then, uh, variation on that. The difference in reactions from, say, a simple reaction time to a choice complex reaction, what are we talking? Are we talking tens of milliseconds, up to a hundred, couple hundred milliseconds? Because this becomes important in sports, right, for hitters and for players. I mean, we, we usually don't think in terms of these milliseconds. So what was the difference between, say, a simple, like the – the athlete, the sprinter getting out of the blocks or maybe an offensive lineman, you know, hearing that count, that cadence that signals go. Was be, and when you have to actually make a decision, did I, if I hear one thing, then do X. If I hear another thing, then do Y. As we start to add complexity, what, what kind of time frame extensions are we looking at here? These very simple kinds of reaction time tests uh, where we have a simple reaction, we're looking at 150 to 175, 180 milliseconds, at the upper end maybe 200 milliseconds, okay? When we introduce something like discrimination, then say we add another 30 or 40 milliseconds, okay? So, so say on these very basic reaction time tasks, now we're looking at 240, 250, 260, 270, okay? Now, when we do choice, two choice, A, B, left, right, now we're saying we're adding another 40 or 50 milliseconds, 340, 350, 360, 370, but these are with very basic tasks. Now, I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, in... 19 in the 1980s I was doing some research on a task that where now it's more complicated but it was a task where you had to discriminate one stimulus from another one called for a response the, the other didn't the stimuli were the word left and the word right okay and so the person had to simply make a left say in in one condition you see the word left you press the left button 
You see the word right, you don't you withhold a response, okay? And typically, subjects and normal, healthy young people are responding at 400, 450 milliseconds. Then I had Matt Williams, who was third baseman for the Giants at that point in time. He was in my lab. And he sat down just because we were, we were, you know, I was showing him the lab, showing him what we were doing. And, of course, all along with it, this interest in testing elite athletes. And so Matt sat down very casually, okay, sat down at the in front of the computer monitor. And I just put him in that task. I said, here's what you do, Matt. And so he ran about 100 trials. He was pressing at like 250, 260. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I mean, my, my really high-level 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds were doing it at like 400, 390, 400, 420, 450. And he was like, it was like a simple reaction to him. Okay, boom, 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 boom. I mean, it was just a piece of cake for him. Boy, Ted, we have, I mean, you know now, we've tested thousands of athletes across different sports. And you're... Your that experience with Matt Williams is is similar to our experience with these elite athletes. Their reaction times, when you add complexity, are unbelievable, and they're faster. They're at the fastest end of the distribution. The simple, and I think that we've seen this right. We've seen this in the research. Simple reaction time isn't very disclosing of differences between athletes and non-athletes or the top athletes and the low. It's, it's how fast they can continue to see, process, react when you're adding complexity or conflict or uh, distractions. When you're complicating the decision and the reaction speed process, they don't get hit as hard. Can you elaborate on that? Because we've, we've done some work on that together. Well, well you know, what, what, what I... Th- think just conceptually about this is it's a massive integrative process. This, you know, speeded decision-making, okay? Speeded, rapid, efficient decision-making. It requires massive integration cerebrally, okay? And now I'm going to give you a little partitioning here because I know you guys are sitting on the edges of your seats. You can hardly (laughs) wait for that. I was thinking about this after uh, Harris and I spoke the other day. I said, okay, let me just partition this decision-making space. And we're talking about reactions now that are unfolding over a third of a millisecond to say two-thirds of a a third of a second to two-thirds of a second. Okay, really rapid decision-making windows, okay? Here's a way to think about it. Here processes, and again, I'll, I'll refer to them as stages. Stages of processing. Stimulus detection. First, you have to detect the stimulus, okay? Then you have to encode the receptor service, say, in the, in, in the eyes, has to encode that stimulus information. Then it has to be, that encoded information has to be passed back into cerebral cortex in the occipital areas. And information has to be extracted from that. Feature extraction has to take place, okay? Then once you've extracted features, your brain has extracted features, the information has to be integrated into some, like the simple letter A or the simple letter B or 
a running back approaching you in the open field, okay? The information all has to be, the feature information has to be integrated, and then that integrated information has to be identified. So you engage in something called stimulus identification. Now, once you've identified the stimulus, then from my perspective, this is what is the, the crucial transitional uh, point. You have to translate that stimulus into a response. Okay, You have to do something with it. A translates into a left response. Okay, The running back coming at you in the open field makes a move, and you, as, say, the, the linebacker in the open field, and unfortunately I was in the open field with guys like Floyd Little when I was a sophomore. <laughs> That's not an enjoyable place to be. Okay? And uh, you have to take... And you have to, you, you pay attention to that stimulus, you integrate the information, and then you have to translate that integrated stimulus information into a response output. Floyd makes a move to the left. I've got to move to the left, but I have to make certain that I'm going to be able to be moving in the ways he's moving so I can make <laughs> contact with him rather than do what I, I did miss him in the open. You know? Okay. I wasn't good at this stuff. All right. Now. I want to have a follow-up. It's not what you're essentially telling uh, us is it's not good enough to simply be able to visually see what's happening. It's what you visually see and transmitting it into an action, right? Yeah, exactly. Because that's where I was going to get to. That's where I was Perfect. going to get to. Exactly. Harris. So then you have to select your response. Yeah, you select it. And then you have to send out the execution command out in, you know, motor cortex. Okay, now, now what happens? So Floyd's in the open field and I'm moving toward him in response to his movements. I have selected my action. Okay, I'm moving towards him. However, Floyd is not just moving, you know, without without engaging in some actions himself, some evasive actions. Okay, so what do I have to do? I have to monitor my actions and be able to make rapid adjustments in those actions. So there are feedback, feed-forward mechanisms. There's all sorts of complicated neurocognitive activity going on that engages both peripheral and central decision-making components, okay? I'm, I mean, things are going on out in the periphery. Okay. And I've been anticipating, I mean, when we played Syracuse when I was a sophomore, we spent all of our time thinking about how we were going to stop Floyd Little. Because Floyd Little had rushed for like 250 yards the week before we played them. So we we stopped Floyd Little. I actually tackled him in the open field, but Jim Nance, their fullback, rushed for like 250 yards and they beat us <laughs> 39 to nothing. <laughs> We stopped Floyd. We we fell apart with Jim. I have another story about Jim. I remember he he was we were there about the five yard line. I was an outside linebacker, and 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 Nance weighed about two hundred and fifty pounds. Like he was a big stud in nineteen sixty four. And who was he playing for? Syracuse. Syracuse. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was a senior. He was like an all-American wrestler. He was really, you know, he played in the, the AFL for the Boston Patriots. And so he ran off tackle. And I hit him at about the five-yard line with, you know, like I was supposed to, with my helmet in front of him. And Jim and I scored together. <laughs> I didn't get credit for that touchdown, though. 
What is it, Ted? So, An object in motion. It, it what? <laughs> it stays in motion. Yeah, he stayed in motion. He he just yeah, I would just brushed me off. We got in the end zone, and he shook my hand. Said congratulations. I don't know. There's a lot of integration that's going on input to output, and then after you send the response output command, a lot of feedbacks occurring, a lot of monitoring of behavior, so you can stop. If you need to, you can redirect your actions and so on, okay? And you have to be able to do that very quickly. And we see these elite athletes who can do this with um, effort, effortlessly make these kinds of adjustments in the middle of action. And we see it all the time. Ted, you played professional baseball. And, um, I mean, there is – I mean, arguably that is one of – hitting a baseball – against some of these pitchers is arguably one of the most challenging feats an athlete can can be facing. And, uh, I mean, you've got less than 385, 390 milliseconds to execute all of those stages of decision-making. Um, talk to us a little bit about what's interesting is you you just so nicely laid out the stages right there's visual processing stages there's translating that to a response there's main monitoring and maintaining the ability to adjust split second adjustment human beings can vary in the the efficiency of those different stages can you elaborate on that a little bit because that's kind of the basis of what we've tried to capitalize on in S2 is just this, the realization and the idea that everyone's wired a little differently. And, and these some of these stages might be very efficient in a brain, and some of these stages may be the bottlenecks. Can you elaborate on kind of how these individual differences across these stages are so important to understanding athletes and, and the kinds of mistakes they make and the things they do might do well? Yeah. Okay. So one of the the, the aspects of, so we'll use hitting a baseball uh, as, as an example. And it's interesting because the first person, now of course, we have to make clear that I was a minor league baseball player. I never played at the highest level, so I didn't play any higher than, uh, than double A. You but, faced uh, Nolan Ryan, though, didn't you? No, no, no. I, I faced Tom Seaver. Faced oh. Tom Seaver oh. in college. Oh. Oh, a lot easier. Played huh? with Nolan Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I played a spring training game with Nolan Ryan. <laughs> when you step in, into the batter's box against guys like Seaver, and, and most of the, even at the minor league level, the, the pitchers are quality pitchers. Probably everybody you play with and against, even at the minor league level, they're probably the best players in, in, in their communities when they play. They're all, you know... Uh, star players growing up, um, you have to step into the batter's box being ready. And I remember when we first played Seaver when I was at UCLA, he was undefeated as a pitcher. We actually beat him. He only lost one game, I think, in college, and, and we beat him. And uh, But, you know, we had heard a lot about Tom Seaver coming into the game. And um, you can hear about a pitcher, but then hitting against him is something very different. His ball exploded at home plate. It was amazing because his fast, and he probably threw 95, 96 miles an hour. His ball exploded. It would get up to the plate, whack, whack, just take off. And it took off unpredictably, okay? Uh, what do you have to do as a hitter? You're going to have to be able to make adjustments 
okay, where you might be swinging and you might have to make a little adjustment, okay? So what, what happens? When the ball is leaving Seaver's hand, you have to be able to detect that pitch very quickly and then you detect and encode, of course, but you have to be able to extract information, okay? The, the really quality hitters, they're able to see hand angle, arm angle. They're able, for me as a hitter, the most important thing for me was to be able to pick up rotation on the pitch, okay? So you have to be able to see the spin on the ball, okay? That allows you then to start making adjustments because, I mean, you know, you can't, as a hitter, you have to make, you're making on each pitch, you're making the decision, you're going to swing, okay? You anticipate swinging. You stop your swing, but you can make adjustments in your swing, okay? As you're moving, okay, you can make adjustments in your swing as you're moving. To, and you see guys at the big league level, they might move their hands in, lean out over the plate, foul off a ball or something like that. You have to be able to make very rapid adjustments, okay? Now, there's this notion of the point of no return in ballistic actions. Like, you know, when you're swinging a bat, that's a ballistic. Boom, a rapid action. There are guys who vary in terms of their ability to stop their swing, to check their swing, as it's called in baseball. They don't get to the point of no return at the same time, okay? Or they are able to stop their action much more efficiently. Maybe the point of no return is the same for everyone. I, I don't think it is, but say if it were, they are able to make stop their action much more efficiently than other guys are, okay? And you know that in terms of your discussion with uh, hitting coaches and stuff. There are these guys where they, the, the hitting coaches will say, guys, some guys are just able to get right up to that point and stop, okay? And, you know, you're talking at a bat speed that may be going from starting point down to point of contact. You may be swinging at 95 to 100 miles an hour. And then to be able to stop or to be able to make an adjustment. So there are a lot of these feedback mechanisms ongoing and there are individual differences in terms of the ability to stop, in terms of the ability to pick up the rotation coming out of the pitcher's hand, to pick up the arm angle and so on. I mean, the most amazing hitter I've ever seen is Barry Bonds. When it looked like Bonds when he was at the plate, that when the it seemed like the ball the ball maybe inches out of the pitcher's hand, and sometimes you just see him drop his bat. Like he knew immediately this pitcher yeah. was going to be out of the strike zone. And I actually said one time to Dusty, you know, I, I know Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker. When Dusty was managing the Giants, and I was watching a game one night, and Bonds was up at the plate. It was against the Dodgers. The game was being played in San Francisco. And right-hander pitching to, to Bonds. And he threw this right-hander threw a pitch on the outside part of the plate, on the black, okay? And it was low and away on the black. It was like a perfect pitch. And Bonds scalded this line drive down the left field line. It was like a bullet, man, double, okay? The next day I called Dusty. I said, hey, man. I said, Bonds, this guy's amazing, man. That was a perfect pitch, and he smoked it. He said, Dusty said to me, Bonds can hit a pitch anywhere in the strike zone, any pitch anywhere in the strike zone, hard, okay? Hey, he could pick up 
out of the hand, arm angles, rotation. And he would know within, within you know, seemed like within 20 milliseconds where the pitch was going to be. Okay, he's, of course, an exception. But we have that, that kind of individual difference. And then, but you also then have that you may be able to compensate if you're not that quick, okay? You may be a little bit faster at selecting, getting responses out or some, some kind of the stimulus response translation. I think that that's critical in, in all of these reactions. It's to be able to make that linkage, that integrative linkage between the input, stimulus input and the response, the response output. So we can have, you know, of course, those kinds of individual differences and they can be at the different, different levels of the, uh, the processing, the ability to control impulses, to, to, to start moving pre- prematurely in baseball we see all the time uh, you know the best hitters have both the visual processing and the motor control uh, but with those that are you know uh, I, I'm going to call them modest hitters because they're not big league stars but we often see guys who struggle for either one of those two reasons but they are able to make up for it in some respects so these guys that have low visual processing, it takes them a little bit longer to process visually what they're seeing, but you better have that back end. You better have that motor control where you can make those adjustments. You can inhibit when the ball is out of the zone. And then in the inverse, some of those guys that have difficulty controlling their motor system, they're a little bit more impulsive. They ha- they better have that great front end, the, the input, so that they can visually sort of detect. When, you can, when you've got it all, uh, you're a pretty darn good hitter. Uh, but for the most part, it's hard to get it all. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bonds clearly had it all. But there's something else that, you know, and, you know, from the, the distinctions in, in, in cognitive science in terms of these decision-making processes, bottom-up versus top-down, okay? Bottom-up, stimulus input comes in, Information is processed through these stages of processing and out goes a response, bottom up, okay? Top down, however, the higher level cognitive control over that processing. So we can do things like selectively attend, okay? So one of the things you can do as a hitter is make a decision. You can make a decision, that's what in baseball is called an approach. You make a decision, well, I have a little bit of trouble handling pitches on the inside half of the plate. Okay. What I'm going to do until I get two strikes is I'm going to be looking for those pitches that are on the, the outside half of the plate pitches away from me. Okay. That's where I'll go. I'll go after those pitches till I get uh, two strikes. Alex Bregman apparently is a superb example of that kind of plate discipline for, for the Astros that apparently he, he wants, he, he wants to have the ball middle in, I guess. And when they when they talk about him as a hitter, they talk about this guy who has this remarkable discipline. This is his top down control that he will not go after pitches outside of his hitting area until he gets two strikes. But boy, when you make a mistake in his hitting area, he's going to light you up big time. Okay, and so that's the top down control. That's the approach until you get two strikes. You are looking for a particular area, or you might be looking for a particular pitch. Okay, if you're not handling breaking, you don't handle breaking balls that well. I'm going to look for fastballs in a certain area. Okay, etc. So there are those kinds of which I think are critically important. Those kinds of top-down controls, and I think guys who 
are a little bit deficient in some of the physical processing capabilities can, compense, can compensate in a very effective way with this top-down control, their, their, their approach, their strategies as hitters. And particularly when you see players who are aging players and they manage to stay around in their mid-30s, late-30s, and they're not the same guys that they used to be as hitters, but they're still effective hitters. They understand themselves. They understand what they need to do at the plate. I don't hit the fastball that that well anymore. Until I get two strikes, I'll look for off-speed pitches. Can we talk about it across the other sports too? Back to football real quick, just to, to emphasize that point you just made. You know, you have physical speed, You've got cognitive speed, and then together they're they're creating play speed, and and so those top-down kind of approaches and thinking, and your ability to anticipate and instinctively pick up on tendencies can help an athlete, say a safety who might not have the the fastest foot speed, always sniff out a play, be in the right place at the right time. Um, and so you can compensate for the physical with the cognitive by having great bottom-up kind of processing as things unfold right in front of you and top-down monitoring and control and anticipation. Yeah, I mean, you see that across sports football field as well. Quarterback, same thing. He plays faster is the expression, right? And these are guys who I think have the high-level cognitive skills. I remember, Scott, you and I talking about this a number of years back. 2015, 2016, I think the, the, the expert analyst was Mike Mayock, I think's his name. And this kid, uh, I think it was a safety, was drafted in the first round, like the eighth or ninth player picked in the draft. And Mayock really liked the pick. He said, this is a guy who's like, I don't know, 4 seven, forty or something. And he said, but the kid plays faster. And right away you start thinking, he has very high-level cognitive processing skills, and that's compensatory for his 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 a little bit slower foot speed. I mean, four seven is not bad, but hey, it's not four five, right? I mean, so he was it was the cognitive skills can be compensatory for the uh, physical um, um, inadequacies that you may. I hate to even use that word when I. Think about so, Ted. Based on your response, there, I guess it's not so black and white, right? Because we do have guys with these physical characteristics, and we do have guys with these cognitive characteristics. But if, but if we had to have one simple answer, does reaction speed or does reaction time matter on the football field or on the baseball field? That is not a simple question to respond to, Brandon. Could we end this uh, broadcast now? <laughs> what do we call this? Broadcast? Tele- oh, this is a podcast. I think what matters most is how quickly your brain integrates information. As I said earlier, the brain is a massive integrative machine. Okay. And what are we doing? We're integrating information left, right, everybody, you know, uh, well, informed people who have a primitive understanding of the brain understand left hemisphere, right hemisphere, you know, left brain, right brain, that sort of stuff. But what we have is, as you know, as neuroscientists, we have the brain integrating information left, right, front, back, anterior, posterior. That's what's happening. The brain is integrating information. And I think the highest level, the most successful athletes, NFL, NBA, um, Major League Baseball, soccer, etc. 
these guys have, and men and women, they have, they have brains that integrate information at very rapid rates. This allows them to be identified as people have very fast reaction times because their brains are so proficient at integrating incoming information with outgoing motor commands and then modifying and regulating action because that's the critical term that Harrison used earlier, to make adjustments in flight. I mean, how many times do you see these great athletes doing things that look impossible? Making adjustments in flight like a great receiver. Making an adjustment in flight to make what looks like, an well, what is an impossible catch for virtually everyone in the world except for a handful of elite athletes. Yeah. One more question along those lines, because it's something that, uh, you know, Scott and I have been thinking about and talking about and even writing about recently is these integrative machines, these brains that have that just can do this so super quickly. It really doesn't matter how smart they are from the typical measurement. Right. So we get these classic measurements of IQ, the Wonderlick, things like that an integrated brain that can process things very rapidly likely has little to do with basic intelligence or personality or those kinds of other quote unquote psychological or mental sides of things. Correct. I agree. Yes, I agree. It's if we think we can think about different kinds of cognitive skill, we may have those, you know, the emotional, the social, the intellectual and the athletic perhaps the athletic brain. And I'm reminded of reading papers that have in their titles, the athletic brain or the athlete's brain, which uh, is probably a different kind of brain in uh, some fundamentally important ways that allows these high level athletes to do the sorts of things that, that, that they're able to do. So it's, if we want to sort of include it in this, this larger field of intelligence, it's athletic intelligence, like emotional intelligence, social intelligence, intellectual intelligence, or whatever, you know, scholarly intelligence. The ability to quickly process and make a decision fast and accurately. Speed and power. Now, that is a concept from, from the old IQ literature, but we're talking about speed and power. You know? Processing right. information quickly and getting out responses very efficiently. That's right, yes. Ted. Well, now that we've really highlighted in complicated situations, excuse me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. No, that's ex that's exactly right. These guys are handling conflict better than anybody. That right there, that comment right there in complicated dynamic environments. That's why the answer to the question does reaction time matter? It does, but it's not as simple as knowing an athlete's simple reaction time uh, or reaction time on a simple response. You know, choice task or a, a basic two choice task. The complexity and the the dynamic nature of the environment that's constantly changing and updating and uh, un in unexpected and sometimes expected ways makes the answer to that question really very very complicated. Yes, decision processing and reaction speed are fundamental to everything these athletes are doing. No, mm -mm. no, no, it doesn't. And, you know, I was thinking about this notion of power, that we see the, the athletes who get to the highest level, they have speed of processing 
but also power because as situations get more complex, they keep getting better and better. They, they're able to deal with the increased complexity of situations. I don't know, Scott, you kind of just wrapped up our entire podcast in a 45-minute podcast in 50 seconds. Well done. I could sit and talk about this stuff for days with Dr. Bayshore. We have to get a second uh, episode, maybe a third, fourth, fifth episode with you, Dr. Dr. B. Now we're going to move into the most, uh, I don't know, this may not be the most fun part for you, but for us it's and the listener, it's one of the most fun parts. We're going to ask you three random and funny questions that have nothing to do with anything that we just spent an hour talking about. Are you ready? Boy, am I pleased to hear that, Harrison. <laughs> Why didn't I you not warn me of you. this? Come on now. <laughs> I can't warn you, but you're going to have to stay with me for this first one, okay? Let's say we found a way to have self-sustaining water, food, and oxygen on Mars. What is the next problem that humans will have to solve for us to live there? Are they going to show Monday Night Football? <laughs> <laughs> Is that because Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are on? Those are your favorite commenters? Hey, man, Aikman, a Bruin, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's an acceptable answer, but is that your final one? I don't want to move on before. <laughs> I'm trying to keep this lighthearted, Harrison. We can't get too serious about this stuff. Come on now, Describe the difference between your first job and the first job a youngster has to get today. I thought these were supposed to be funny questions. Well, you know, I, because I'm running down, I didn't have a lot of jobs. I was fortunate enough to have a father who um, started working when he was like five years old in you know, 1909 when child labor laws were different. And when I was growing up, he said to me, enjoy your childhood. I don't want you working. OK, so I really kind of the first job I had was after. In my summer, the summer after my freshman year, I was playing summer baseball at the University of Illinois in a college summer league, Central Illinois Collegiate League. And during the day, I would dig ditches, okay, along with uh, another guy who was named Don Hansen, who actually played for the University of Illinois football. We played against one another a couple of months later. Um, but digging ditches, so the difference between what I did for my first job there isn't there isn't a millennial alive today who would be digging ditches uh, <laughs> as their first job. Okay, they might be a barista. Barista is that how you pronounce it? Something, but they're not going to be digging ditches. See, it is a funny answer. I don't know what you're talking about. And the uh, the final question I have for you today, Doctor Ted, is: Can you describe the best day you've ever had? And I want to go ahead and say this is a clean podcast, so you can describe that good day, but make sure it's family friendly, okay? I, I I almost can't respond to this because Scott knows me well, so he knows the story. But uh, it's both a wonderful day that led to the saddest day of my life. But it was my when my first son was born. And then Scott knows the story, so I'll just stop there. When your when your son was born, I uh, just recently had a son, so I understand. Well, Doctor Ted, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about simple reaction time, you know, complicated reaction time, the differences between, and why it matters to predict on field performance. We hope to have you back soon. Well, what what you will see is if you watch me get up out of this chair, there's nothing simple about my reaction time. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Ted. 
We hope today was a learning experience for you, understanding why simple reaction time simply doesn't cut it when measuring the decision-making performance in athletes. As always, if you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode, and share it with a friend. Follow us on Twitter, at S2Cognition, and of course, Instagram, at S2.Cognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at www.s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. Talk to you soon.